of the questions that was asked was um, uh, about what, what does an indigenous church look like? And uh, the, the question is, especially in North Dakota, I'm not sure if you guys can, can answer what an indigenous church in North Dakota looks like, uh, but um, t- tell us how you discover what the church in your area needs to be. I think the answer to what does an indigenous church in North Dakota look like? I think the smart aleck answer is it looks like you. I, I mean, seriously, it does. Uh, for us, when we were planning a church, I think we very much tried to answer that question. How how do we fit here like a missionary thinks, so to speak? And uh, And I think really that it is somewhat, as John mentioned in his sermon, it's getting to know your neighbors. It's getting out there, learning what your community is, and hopefully finding that person of peace and others and beginning, beginning to assimilate them into the congregation. Not making as much about us. That's a challenge for any church. I think it's trying to get it more outward oriented, and then hopefully becoming more indigenous kind of takes care of itself. That was, that's my short perspective. I'd say if your church does not look like your community, it is not indigenous. Our church is uh, our church was a white church. It was uh, uh, it was an indigenous church when it was planted years ago, um, but our community has changed. We now have 124 languages being spoken in the high school next door to our church. 124, uh, and so our church now has more than 40 nations worshiping in it every single week. 40 people from those nations, and some of them first generation immigrants. But if it didn't look like that we wouldn't be an indigenous church. So it's got to take on the makeup of the community. Okay. Eric, I'm glad you could join us. As as usual. Uh, Here's a great question. Um, How do you guys make sure that your wives stay encouraged? That seems timely. We're, we're not sure. Um, well, that's okay. I'll sit in between these guys. And that's awesome. So, how? Uh, how do we say, uh, make sure our wives stay encouraged? Is that the question? Um, well, for us, you know, we have, uh, we have four daughters. Our oldest daughter turns 21 this month. Our youngest daughter is 14. And the other two are spread pretty evenly between the two. Um, and... Uh, you know that that's a busy life, as as many of y'all know. That's that's going to be a busy life no matter what. A uh, couple of things for my wife: she is not, um, she is not uh, responsible for my job. Uh, I'm called to be the pastor there, uh, and as far as what she does, uh, any expectation that the church might have about her activity in the church. Uh, is is ignored completely other than what she would have as a normal, everyday follower of Jesus serving in the church. Uh, in our home, there is no greater expectation because she is my wife. She doesn't have to play the piano or the uh, jumbo box drum. Uh, times, days are changing. Um, and, and, and then she and I talk a lot. Uh, depending on the season in the church, y'all know, y'all know different seasons in the church demand a different level of uh, of uh, uh, conversation at times. And if 
things are a little bit more stressful at the church, you want to talk a little bit more. Um, and then we get away. Um, when I get home, I'll go to church. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, be in the office. Tuesday afternoon, she and I go away to a cabin uh, in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains. We'll uh, stay there for a couple of days. We'll come back. Uh, and then uh, we plan times to be away. So it's just her and me. And we have the opportunity to do that now that our girls are, are older. Uh, but we have to spend time together. Anybody else? None of your wives are encouraged. All right. Um, I wanted to, uh, one, one question was, um, do you think that it's different today, the receptivity of the gospel in our culture as maybe what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, the heyday maybe in Southern Baptist life? It, do you feel like people are as receptive today as they were then and we've maybe fooled ourselves or somebody want to speak to that? I'm just not even 40 yet, so I have no idea what it was. So someone else Seven me. years ago? Yes, the answer is yes. I think we fooled ourselves. I think, I think we hit an era about 30 years ago where we were convinced that people didn't want us to come to their homes anymore. They didn't want us to be on their front porch. They didn't want to hear the gospel anymore because uh, the popularity of the gospel was waning. Uh, what was happening in public schools, you know, you took Christmas songs out. You didn't pray in school anymore, on and on and on. So the God consciousness lowered and the receptivity was less. I think that's accurate. But what the church did was they backed off so much that we don't even know how to share the gospel with anybody anymore. And so what's happened is now the pendulum has swung back. Now people have a spiritual hunger um, the typical person doesn't have an anger about the gospel. Only political people really have an anger about the gospel. And they are so far out in left field. They're, they're just literally enemies of the cross. But, but the typical person, whether they be Hindu or Buddhist or uh, Islamic, uh, whether they be just totally unchurched, they want to know what do we believe about, about heaven, about eternal life, about the afterlife. They want to know. And the deal is nobody's ever told them anything. And I think we're back at a New Testament kind of era where Paul would stand up in front of the philosophers on Mars Hill and tell them something and, and tell them, look, you're worshiping an unknown God. We know who we worship. And Jesus said the same thing to the woman at the well. It's time for us to go back to the communities now. And, uh, and what, what we're, at, we're at the point where we don't know how anymore, Doug. And, and since we don't know how, if the pastors don't lead the way, it won't happen. God consciousness will continue to slip and we'll become more and more alienated from a culture as a whole. It just happens to be my PhD is on this very topic. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it's a boring dissertation. Is this your question? Yeah. Did you yes, write it? I, oh, okay. I did. I wrote it so I could speak on it. Um, uh, we are, as John has said, we're back to the New Testament period. The, the difference is in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s of, of our time, there was only one real dominant religious expression on the scene of America, and that was Christianity, whether it was the Protestant flavor or the uh, Catholic flavor or any of the versions in between. There was really only one religious expression. It was in God we trust, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's not New Testament. New Testament is more like where we are today, where there are 100,000 different religious expressions, and people um, have a hunger for spirituality, um, and they are worshiping at altars of lots of gods, including an unknown God. 
Um, and we don't have a privileged place anymore as the, as the Church of Jesus Christ in terms of conversation in America. When we present the gospel, we are one of many viable options for that person. And they're going to listen to what we have to say, especially as we communicate the story of Jesus as we have experienced him. Uh, but they're not going to give it prom prominence or priority just because it's Christianity. Um, so we have to do a better job of communicating. Uh, and, and as John has also said, uh, we've given up our voice in many ways. We've, we've become silent. And, um, and, and we have to learn as, as pastors and as people, as followers of Jesus, that number one, it's our responsibility. Number two, we need to learn how to communicate. And um, and and that is a that's a conversational thing. CWT, EE, um, uh, Faith, all those programs, although they are great, and I've I've taught them all, um, that that is not a sales pitch. Is not going to get it done. You have to communicate Jesus Christ conversationally and in the story to communicate well with people. Um, and I'm not talking necessarily about uh, internationals, although it does apply to them as well. And I'd go so far as to build on that. Uh, what he said was right. But this, this, is, this is key, guys. This is key. Um, for a pastor to have a plan where he can incorporate stories and truth right. uh, and teach his people to do the same thing and teach them to teach others to do the same thing, that's the only way this is going to happen. Airport stories. You're never going to get anybody. You're never going to reach a, a, a city, a village, a school. You're never going to do it unless you equip people. That's Jesus' plan. Why don't we think that's good enough? And, and, and that was actually one of the questions was, what is the best plan? And what I hear is, it doesn't matter what the plan is. Just get a plan and do something. Grab a hole and take a row. Because we're, we're, we're becoming a generation of churches that are not, we, we preach evangelism, but we don't live it. And so, and so, it, it, so the plan is insignificant. In the, it's the gospel. And we just, however you want to do it, it doesn't really matter. I think that's what I hear from you guys. Is that correct? Yes, and I, I would go further and say we have to redefine what a gospel-centered church is. A gospel-centered church is not a church where the preacher preaches the gospel. And it's not a church where the teachers in the classes teach the gospel. A gospel-centered church is where the church is centered on sharing the gospel with their neighborhoods and their families and their homes. And, and so we fail to even define what a gospel-centered church is. We've lost sight of that. Brother T.C., I, I, I don't want to pass this over without you speaking to this because uh, of your experience. I started pastoring my first church in uh, 1963. And back then, when you shared the gospel with somebody, you asked the question, has anybody before ever shared the gospel? Almost always, no. And the same thing is still true today. Uh, you you, you should, uh, go to somebody's house, give them a plan of salvation. Has anybody before ever done this? They said no. What we did uh, back almost 25 years ago, doing this business, when we realized that baptism was on the decline, we began to look for shortcuts. And we all remember, you know, let's, uh, let's change our music, let's change our dress, and that's going to answer it. Well, the fact is, unsaved people, 50 years ago and today, they don't care what you do in church. They're not going to come. Uh, they don't care uh, who the preacher is. They don't care what you sing, uh, whether you wear your funeral suit or whatever you wear. They're not going to come. 
So we've made all those changes, and our baptisms are still declining, and we have a lot of frustrated churches today. It's not working. And uh, and uh, we, we still have a, a lot to believe that there's something we can do that can attract unsaved people to come to church. But I use the illustration, occasionally a fish will jump in the boat, but not often. And you just got to go catch them. And they don't care what kind of boat it is or what kind of, you know, you just got to go catch fish. And I think it's always been like that with unsaved people. You just got to go. I was meeting with a young preacher the other day, and he said, have you seen our, our, our web page? Well, we got a good one. Twelve web pages are good. But not many unsaved people are going to look at a web page. You know, you know. So I told John a while ago, I'm praying that I'm going to be around long enough to where First Baptist Euless reports a thousand baptisms. And that's going to happen, not just at Euless, but some other places. Because we have a lot of guys like him that are doing now what he talked about. And, and it's just very encouraging. But... Uh, I know it's different. We we have a, a, a different type people. I mentioned a while ago, years ago, it was primarily the Protestant. In, in Abilene, is Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ, you know, Assembly of God, an occasional Mormon, of course, as we all know, that's all true. So we have to be better equipped today. Um, when I first started pastoring, you seldom ran across anybody with a college education except school teachers. Boy, that's changed. And so we just got to be better, better at it. Keep dominating, but I have. This is the passion of mine right now. God's teaching me so much. I'm, uh, better equipped. I agree with being better equipped and teaching our people uh, better how to share the gospel. One thing I do not believe is I do not believe we have to be apologists. I think that's been the failure of evangelism. We 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 believe that we've got to answer uh, the Buddhist question of you know whatever and 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 how is Jesus better than you know whoever and. The bottom line on it is I teach our people one thing. I say, you go, you share the gospel. If they're not receptive, if there's not a man of peace uh, or somebody that's open, just bless them and go to the next house. And you wait for the Holy Spirit to do something in their lives where they're so empty, so broken, that they're looking for something other than one of these thousand gods who will not hear them, will not rescue them, will not touch them for anything because they don't exist. Uh, wait for that. And then that person will remember the seed that was planted in their heart by your brief gospel presentation. Don't. Don't do the apologist thing. You can't argue people into the kingdom of heaven. It never has been true. It never will be true. It's a God thing. It's a Holy Spirit thing. Share the gospel and move on. The great thing about the Dakotas is that we have practiced the three-minute testimony where we tell people, you share your story because, and, and we do that at the, at the rally. We've, see, we've seen thousands of people come to Christ through that. And so that was that was perfected in my opinion right here we, this was the 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 uh, breeding ground for that to come to life and so what was my life like before Christ how I met Christ and how my life has been different and I tell my people that um, that nobody can take away your story it's your story you don't have to know everything about the Bible it's your story about how the gospel changed you and uh, and so I, I, I my my fear is that we are churches that are that are preaching the gospel, but we've lost touch with the community. And I love what you said, John, in that you stood in the in the football stadium and saw your city, 
and thought, oh, how am I going to fit them all into my church? And it's not about getting them to church. It's about getting them to Jesus. And I think when we begin to transfer as, as Dakotas, because it's really easy for us to get frustrated because not enough people are coming or we don't have the right resources or we don't have the right building or, or we don't have a staff uh, that we need or we don't have the, the money to, to do ministry. And it's not about getting them in our church. If God wants them in our church, then he will connect us to that. And so uh, I, think, I think we need to be encouraged by the fact that, uh, yeah, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I feel like Eric Thomas. I want to bring it. Let me add something. I think also um, one of the things I was a part of uh, revitalizing a church from, it was dying and it's been through 25 pastors in its 50-year history and just uh, horrible things. And then I now I'm planting a church. And, and the one thing I've seen constant in revitalizing and in planting is that we have to be intent on um, realizing that where our people work, play, and live is their mission field. And the church can't do... Um, can't create environments where we're taking people out of the sphere of influence inside an insulated huddle where they're never around lost people. And, um, and so make sure that when you're thinking about evangelism, you're thinking about, um, when you're thinking about equipping them, don't create two years' worth of ministry programs to train them and move them out of their sphere of influence. Instead, free up their time in order to be of influence where they work, where they play, where they live. Acts 17 says that God has appointed uh, where we live, where we work in this time in history. So the people that go to your church, they work where they work because God wants them there. They live on the street that they live on because God wants them there. They're in their cubicle because God wants them. And, um, yeah. Let, let, let me, let me, <laughs> he's preaching later, <laughs> not as late as you. Okay, um, let, 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 me, let me also talk about what I think is a, is a very important topic especially in the Dakotas. There's been a lot of emphasis through our convention for church planting, uh, but I think there also needs to be a great emphasis on church revitalization. I'd love to hear you guys speak on that. I, I think any church revitalization has to center around um, exalting Christ and equipping the saints to share their faith. If if you are not um, focused in on just taking one or two people saying we are going to share our faith with other people, um, then then it, it, there won't be revitalization. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, so we have to be very intentional. When you're revitalizing a church, when you're taking an established church and trying to move it to a place of vitality again, uh, the only way to accomplish that is don't get, and I, I mean this with all my heart, you just can't get so bogged down in all the Robert's Rules of Order and, and business meetings and, and uh, Aunt Susie wants her cat, you know, honored at tomorrow's worship service. Y'all have had that, haven't you? Uh, a, a cat being honored. we got to honor this cat because it was a part of my family. Anyway, uh, you, you just you have to have the disciplined focus as the leader to say, Thank you very much, but we're having evangelism training or whatever we call it. Can we talk? We're going to have that this afternoon at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, and it's going to be in the fellowship hall. We're going to learn how to share our faith. We're going to go out. We're going to share our faith. Thank you, Aunt Susie. I know your cat Betsy's going to be fine, but we're going to stay focused on this. And that is the only way to stay revi to revitalize the church, I believe. I don't think that dry bones can live again unless we are – 
immersed in the Spirit of God, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think also revitalization is is uh, uh, when when we were a part of it in Illinois. Um, I decided I would just I would begin taking my deacons to share the gospel in my city, and so um, they they thought I was going to go talk about church, and I t- I took them to the local ca- cafe. I took them to uh, a mechanic's place. I, I began to take the deacons with me, so because they had they had, it had been so long since they had shared the gospel, they had forgotten the joy in seeing someone come to know Christ, and so I just took them with me. And I think I think you're the greatest example, the greatest opportunity you have to revitalize your church is not through any type of program that Dakota Baptist Convention or NAM or anybody else sets up. It's where you begin to say, I love my community enough to see the gospel go forth, and I'm going to take my deacons, I'm going to take the leaders, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do it if no one else does it. Yeah. He's right. And I would also add that you don't have to be the bad guy for changing your church if the gospel is the reason it's changing. And what's happening, I mean, First Year List is 110 years old. We're half as old as your church. And uh, bottom line is that, that there were a lot of stagnant Sunday school classes and groups, and they were di- dying. I mean, they, they, they were nice people that loved each other, but if a stranger came among them, they'd shoot them. I mean, if they weren't, you know, white, and if they weren't uh, anti-Obama, if they weren't, I mean, all this stuff, they didn't fit. And that's, the problem is our community is not that now. And so what's happened is we, we've begun sharing the gospel. We've begun teaching people to do it. Those classes, those same classes that used to be like that are being exploded outward because now they have a passion for people who haven't heard the gospel, and so they have to change. They have to embrace people that don't believe in their political ideology. They have to, they have to embrace people that are not the same color, not the same language, not the same background. But they do it because they know, man, this, this person's salvation is at stake. If we don't love them and share the gospel, they're not going to make it. And it's changing us, but it's the gospel that's doing it. That's my point. The point is you don't have to stand from the pulpit and say, we've got to change. We're in bad shape. I mean, you can do that until you're blue in the face, but that's not going to make people change. The gospel is the change agent. Let, let me, let me close. We're, we're out of time, I know. Uh, but there's a clock up here that's got all zeros. But I want to ask one question from each of you. If you had one thing that you could tell a pastor Preparing to accept a new ministry position, what would you tell them? One thing. My mentor, uh, Merle Walker, told me, um, he said, Brent, you're responsible for what what they know and not what they do. So there's no... There's no, um, it's not my, it's, I'm responsible to know, not what they do. And so I'm, 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 I'm leaving the work up to the Holy Spirit, not, not on me. Let, uh, we just, our church just went through this transition. Uh, church I founded, pastored for a decade. Our new pastor is shy of, well, it's just been over one year. One thing I would tell a new pastor is it takes time. That's not profound, but I, it just takes it takes a little bit of time to just uh, to feel at home, and that's okay. That's what I've tried to encourage him in. He's aggressive. He's strong. He's getting after it, and some amazing things have happened that he saw that I had that I I was blind to because I'd been there. But it still takes some time, and he needs that encouragement. 
to stick with it, to endure. Uh, the one thing I would say is what I'm going to preach here in a few minutes. To a new, to a new pastor that's coming in, is what you say? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I would say that uh, that pastor would need to say to the church or would need to be satisfied in his own heart that that church can come into alignment with the vision God has given you. And by vision, I don't mean a 10-year plan, five-year plan. I mean the vision of, of, for me, it is sharing the gospel and getting the gospel out in whatever way. If a church can't come into alignment with that, I'm not going. I mean, I mean my life is, I haven't got much left, so I'm, I'm not going to waste it on something else. And I think everybody needs to do that. Everybody can come into alignment for that, though. And people are a really unspiritual person in the church that says, I can't come into alignment of the gospel. Now, if you follow the leading of the guy on the couch with you, you're only about halfway there because he's still going, preaching every Sunday. Is that what you told me, Brother T.C.? So I don't want to hear halfway. You're, you're, you're not near the end, brother. You're just getting started. The church is called the guy. He's accepted the church. That's what, that's what the question okay. is. Okay. I would tell him to spend about a year, 18 months, just getting acquainted with the folks, loving the folks, and finding out who they are. And then, whatever he wants to do. Right. Appreciate it. I'd love to just sit here all afternoon. Two or three of these guys hadn't preached yet. So uh, thank you guys very much.